Good evening and welcome to Slam the Gavel, the show that tells it all regarding family court, other court issues, as well as CPS. I am your host, Marianne Petrie. Bradley's mother, Narcus Golan, passed away three months ago. Her son is autistic and needs structured routine therapies he receives for his autism six days a week. However, Italy just entrusted Bradley to Italian social services. If he is ruled to go back, he will face the next three to four years in the Italian foster system where he can't speak or understand the language. He will then be taken away from the only family he has ever known. Please call Governor Hochul and voice your concerns at 518 518- 474-8390. That's Governor Hogel at 518-474-8390. And please voice your concerns to keep Bradley here safe in these United States. Hashtag keep Bradley safe. I have a brand new guest on. I have Rhonda Vicker on. Now she has a unique perspective of having been involved in two different custody cases in two different counties, each being on opposite ends of the alienation spectrum. Because of this, she she has been able to see firsthand the influence of the AFCC in establishing county culture within family court. She believes that bringing awareness to family court issues and banding together with other family court victims are key components to ultimately achieving necessary reform. Gag orders, however, are the court's weapon of choice to prevent this from happening. Currently, Rhonda is in a custody dispute in Allegheny, PA, where she recently became a pro se litigant. Court sanctions alienation is a very real concept and is prevalent a factor in her case. Throughout the life of her case, she has fought hard to make sense of it all and has begun to slowly peel back the layers of family court corruption and wants to bring awareness and help to mothers also struggling with a system that is general, public falsely believes is inherently good and it's not. Judge Jessel Costa, who is son of Senator Jay Costa, is her presiding judge. Recently, Rhonda appeared in court for the first time before him as a pro se litigant. And it didn't take long for Rhonda to become painfully aware that justice will not be served in her case. Litigation began October 2020, and currently her trial is continued generally. It's always in continuance. Throughout this time, Rhonda has uncovered several instances of corruption amongst the family court players involved and full the experts' retaliation in exchange. Rhonda welcomes other protective parents to reach out to her on Facebook throughout the following link. And I will provide the link in the podcast notes as well as her email where she can be reached. So I welcome you to slam the gavel, Rhonda. I'm really sorry you're going through this. Thank you, Mary, and good morning, and I appreciate you having me on. Thank you. Yes, and I'm glad you're here to inform us this has been a long haul for you, and you've got two separate counties going on and a lot on your plate as a pro se litigant. I I do want to say that that does, you know, it has given me a unique perspective because something interesting that I didn't know when I went through the first case in Westmoreland County was the influence of the AFCC. It has become painfully aware now through seeing the difference in in Allegheny. Allegheny has AFCC members all over the place. It's, It's infiltrated by the AFCC. However, Westmoreland, I pulled up the list on uh, the AFCC website, they don't have a single one. 
And you can see the drastic difference between how the two counties operate. Mm-hmm. It's, it's obvious. I mean, the there's n- not necessarily, cor- like I didn't experience corruption per se in Westmoreland County. I did feel the bias against women, but not the blatant corruption like how it's going on in Allegheny County. Right. And for those of people that don't know what the AFCC is, it's the Association of Family and Conciliation Courts. And uh, the premier interdisciplinary and international association of professionals dedicated to this whole shenanigans. Okay, so I'm so sorry, but please continue. So um, where would you like me to start? Right. I mean, because it's just so uh, frustrating with everything, you know, there's these false beliefs regarding the family court. Everyone thinks, oh, justice happens there until it happens to you. Exactly. Now, um, when back in 2018, I was in the women's shelter from August to the beginning of September. And, you know, when you're trying to leave a relationship, everybody tells you, get out, get out, get out. But what they don't tell you about is what you're walking into, which is often worse, which is the family court system. That is something that re-traumatizes a lot of victims. Mm -hmm. And it's actually even worse. I mean, women in general who are in an abusive relationship, okay, getting out is hard enough. But then when you actually go into family court to try to protect your children, you're faced with a totally blindsided experience from the very institution that you expect to protect you. Mm -hmm. And that, I mean, you know, you're already cut down a few pegs. That is just so traumatizing and so unreal that I want other women to realize what is going to happen because I've actually called the women's shelter back and I'm like, this needs attention. Mm -hmm. You need to make, you know, victims aware of this. This needs to be incorporated into your program. And it's not right. Anybody who speaks out about family court, I mean, they shut you down. That's, that's the issue. And they should know that they're going to be re-victimized in these domestic violence shelters as well. Absolutely. And, you know, this, you know, we've all been raised to respect judges and the police and we were taught this you know oh you know everyone's good and they're there to help and they're going to do the right thing and we've all been implanted with this false hope of justice right the general public believes that family court is inherently good and is going to do the right thing and what they say is credible but they have no idea what really goes on and that's what i'm trying to do is bring awareness to the reality of what family court actually is Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what it causes is PTSD. And like with your case, with all the continuances, and if anyone doesn't know what that is, it's when one lawyer motions to drag this out and then they drag it out to another date. Then they'll find some other reason to file another continuance to drag it out to another date or the judge can drag it out. And this causes PTSD and in fact, legal abuse, which is also in the DSM-5. I honestly believe that legal abuse syndrome is a large contributor to PTSD. Yes. In 
you know, what happened here was both opposing counsel and the judge went on maternity and paternity leave. So it got continued for six months. So a lot can happen in <sighs> six months. Right. And oh my God. A lot did happen in six months. Mm-hmm. Generally speaking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's where we're at now. But I, I did want to talk about the gag orders and mm-hmm. as kind of a segue, see when when I had my first case in and in Westmoreland, it was you know, I was the typical member of the general public believing the family court was inherently good and going to do the right thing. And, you know, for the most part, I didn't see anything out of the ordinary, you know, at first. So here I go entering into this thinking, oh, okay, we're going to do the same thing. And when I started realizing that things weren't exactly right, I started researching cases. And what made it click for me was I found the Dr. Susan Silver case, and it was also in Allegheny County. And it was just a random Google searches. I stumbled upon this case and I became fascinated because in her case, she is gagged to the point where she can't even say her name in testimony before Congress. Her attorneys also got gagged. And... (sighs) If you, I became, I mean, I just became fixed on this case and like enamored by it. And I was, I was hooked and I just like kept reading more and more and more. Like her son testified on the stand about like in graphic detail about the sexual abuse he endured and the father ended up with sole custody. And when I realized that something like that could happen is when it clicked. So here I am in the middle of my own realizing, oh my God, family court is not the just institution that you believe it is. You falsely believe it is. Uh And that's when I, you know, it it was kind of like a, I guess I want to say a positive revelation in a, in a not so positive way. Like, it's like, fine. Like, what am I in the middle of? Oh my God. And that's exactly how I felt. The, uh, I, quickly lost the disillusioned public persona of family court real fast through that case because I just couldn't believe it. I mean, and they even gagged her attorneys as well. That's crazy. And it was also in Allegheny County. And oh. and uh, I'm one of the, the players is also familiar to me. So this, I mean, it's also the fact of how close it is to home, mm-hmm. you know, which made it scary that this is going on in our courts, the courts that are set up to protect us. So you come in here being, you know, getting out of a domestic violence situation, you enter into this and you realize you're up against such a monumental wall that that isn't supposed to be there. Oh, man. And, you know, her attorneys were gagged. She was gagged. What are some things you can do if you are under a gag order? Well, it's, I look at gag orders as the oil for the well-oiled machine that they use to cover up the corruption, to keep this $50 billion a year industry going, because that's what it is. Right. 
you know, 58,000 children a year are handed over to an abusive parent as part of the $50 billion a year industry. So they don't want to lose that. So what I, you know, what I personally do is I don't talk about any specifics personally, because in Susan's case, I learned that the main sticking point that because she fought it all the way to the you know the PA Supreme Court she tried to get it into the Supreme Court and they wouldn't take the case so from her case I learned don't talk about your kids don't talk about your ex you mm -hmm. can't talk about the political aspect of things because that's protected free speech so you you find out what you can do so what you can do I speak out about uh, about other mothers I, I thank the mothers who are brave enough and who can go public with their cases. I share their cases. I talk about the injustice in their cases. Mm -hmm. And I personally have two cases going on. So if I'm talking, how do you know who I'm talking about? You don't. Right. So, you know, prove it. Prove mm -hmm. I'm talking about this person or that person. You, you, I don't do that at all. Mm -hmm. If I stay away from that, that's how I'm able to advocate as a on the for the greater good of everybody. Definitely. And, and that's what I want to do. And that's what I, I strive and you know keep fighting for is to get the corruption out there. Because look, let's be honest, an abuser is going to be an abuser. We expect that. Mm -hmm. What we don't expect is the court to further abuse us. Oh. And okay. that's exactly what they do. So now apparently, um, there was a former attorney involved in the case filed a document containing a statement that was known to be false. Yes. Why are they doing this? I'm, I'm sure that attorney is not the only one. Well, what it is, is, you know, without going into specifics, the significance of that that I want to talk about is when an attorney files a knowingly false statement, there is a rule. It is uh, here because I'm bad with oh, citing it, off memory. So let me uh, reference my notes here. Under the rules of conduct put forth by the disciplinary board that govern attorneys, section 8.3 says, and I am going to read this, a lawyer who knows that another lawyer has committed a violation of the rules of professional conduct that raises a substantial question as to that lawyer's honesty, trustworthiness, or fitness as a lawyer in other respects, shall inform the appropriate professional authorities. So in this particular case, I'm not identifying anything, but I am aware of a situation in a case where a lawyer filed a knowingly false statement. So going through the rules of professional conduct, if another lawyer with a license in Pennsylvania finds out about this and they don't report that, then it's on their license. So what family court's going to want to do, so, you know, they're going to want to brush all this under the carpet. And that's what I've seen happen. So uh, it becomes like, a, uh, how do I want to say it? Like, I mean, it's a cover up. That right. There's no other way to put it. Right. But I encourage people that when misconduct happens, file your complaints. But when you do, what... Um, what I encourage people to do is have the rules of professional conduct write out and read from them as you're drafting your complaint and see what has been violated and call those points out specifically. 
But see, uh, in this particular situation, what I've seen happen is the other the judge and the other attorneys involved are trying to hide this fact. And that is the significant part. Not only should it call into question the credibility of the individual, whoever that may be, mm-hmm. that admitted it, but the the judges and the other attorneys involved as well. Because this is blatant lies being submitted to the court. It's fraud. Mm-hmm. It's fraud on the court. Fraud on the court. Mm-hmm. And, and with fraud on the court, there is no time limit. If fraud on the court can be proven, everything is voided and vacated. And it should be. And, you know, we, we, I've been, you know, I've had discussions with other people and, you know, the the problem is, is that the powers that be kind of protect their own. Yeah. So that is what we're up against. But as, as a whole, as a movement, I think that we need to demand accountability. Mm -hmm. That's important. Definitely. And I know I reported an attorney and of course they send you that the letter back within two weeks saying blah, blah, blah. But, you know, I just had a bad feeling about it and I called them up and I talked to this really nice guy and he said, if this is really bothering you, resubmit and say you want the case opened on this attorney. And he said, be more specific and add more details. So I did. And he got in trouble. Now, I wasn't citing any rules because I didn't know of these rules that you're talking about, but, you know, just keep, keep it alive. You know, if, if you're saying, hi, I know something bad happened. I, why am I getting this letter? Call them up and ask and resubmit with more detail. Yep. If you don't, you know, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again, keep fighting. And that's another thing that, that I've noticed that they try to do to you. They try to wear you down. They try to break you, but I try my best to fight and, you know, double down and come back harder every time they try to, you know, oppress me basically is what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Right. It's an oppressive extortion system. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And one thing interesting I found out about Allegheny County is when I entered the system, Mm -hmm. we had at the first conciliation conference, they ordered co-parenting counseling. (laughs) And I never even asked for it. Um, however, it was ordered to be done at the Parenting Institute. And this is kind of an interesting thing that I've been working on is uncovering the the money trail and how everything connects in Allegheny County. Mm -hmm. So I I got ordered to this co-parenting counseling at the Parenting Institute. Now, what was interesting is the Parenting Institute was founded by three individuals, Dr. Anthony McGordy, Dr. Beth Bliss, and uh, Lynn McBeth. Mm -hmm. Dr. Doctors McGroarty and Bliss are two of the custody evaluators in Allegheny County. McGroarty trained Bliss. Mm. So do we see how, okay, now we're connecting the players and connecting the dots. So Beth Bliss, she likes to give evaluations that cause you to have to go back twice in a year to get additional evaluations. And also she likes to order supervised visitation. Well, Um, let me, let me back up for a second. I did forget one important point when at the parenting Institute, mm -hmm. they 
had recommended supervised visits to a mom through a place called Happy Child Visitation. <laughs> that place is owned by a woman named Susie Galtieri. So when Beth Bliss recommends supervised visitation, if you're in counseling at the Parenting Institute, they recommend that you go to the supervised visits with Susie. So do you see how like Beth Bliss's recommendations can cause, you know, create business for Susie mm -hmm. and keep the cycle of money flowing? Because when you have an intake at the Parenting Institute, you know what they do? They do two things. First of all, they ask for your taxes. And I personally believe it's because they want to figure out what your case is worth. Yeah. You know what I mean? It, there's a big difference if you are living below the poverty line and can't afford this or that. I believe you would get treated a, a different way mm -hmm. versus if, you know, in the Dr. Susan Silver case, they see the term doctor mm -hmm. and, you know, this this poor mom yep exactly it, they see the money and they want the money so you know her uh she hasn't seen her child in over six years oh that's oh. so wrong and that's alienation by the courts that's exactly. domestic violence by proxy by these courts right course of control and it was actually a family bridges case mm -hmm. after dad got sole custody she had to pay to send the child to family bridges and family bridges, I believe, was instrumental, you know, in keeping her from her son after that. But that, you know, yeah, it, yeah. it's interesting how all the players connect. Um, McGrory was her evaluator. He's the one that recommended family bridges in that in that case. And this is this really is custodial interference using coercive control that leads to domestic violence by proxy by the courts. And also, too, it, it violates your constitutional rights to be a part of your own child's life. You know, mm -hmm. they, when they, it, the cons, I, I hate the term alienation, but the concept of parental alienation is one thing. I, I like to refer to it as the courts erasing you because mm -hmm. that's exactly what they do. When the courts erase you, you're being deprived your constitutional right to be a part of your own child's life. And mm -hmm. according to the quote unquote alienation experts, it makes no sense because, okay, so wait, if according to them, mom is trying to alienate the child from dad, which I don't know if you remember that one case in Allegheny County where uh, Richard Ducote cross-examined uh, Dr. Evans and the transcript went viral. I've actually posted it on my page recently. Mm -hmm. Um Richard Ducote asked Dr. Evans, like, is parental alienation worse than breaking both arms and legs of a child? And he replied, potentially. Oh. Is parental alienation worse than um, a father vaginally penetrating his daughter? Potentially. I mean, I have all this posted. I have the link to the to the official transcript on my page. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he kept replying, yes. Okay, so wait a minute. If the if the um, parental alienation experts have this attitude, then how is it okay to alienate the other parent by the court? Right. When when the court should be using the term child psychological abuse. Right. 
what I, I think should happen, you know, I, I, I think what ends up happening is that they have such a high caseload going on that they just want to next. It's like a it's like a conveyor belt. They don't want to take the time. Right. To help these families, they don't want to take a time, take the time to work through the issues and really do what's in the child's best interest. Mm-hmm. They want to just make the case go away so that they can move on to the next one. So what is the, the easiest way for them to do that? Erase one parent and just then then everybody shuts up and goes home. And then they'll put, you know, gatekeepers in place and, you know, deny motions for reconsideration and all that kind of stuff. And these children are then effectively, according to their terminology, alienated from one of their parents, which they're claiming is abuse anyway. And it makes no sense. I have a hard time with that concept. I really do. It's it's hard to understand. See, I think the courts are abusing that term parental alienation, which really should be called child psychological abuse, to soothe these bruised egos of these in- individuals that are claiming, oh, you're alienating the kid from the mother or father. So they're abusing this. Everyone's getting abused and they're abusing that term, which really should not even be used. It should be child psychological abuse. I mean, I firmly believe that the uh, the behavior that they refer to with the term alienation exists. I've had one case on both ends, ends of the spectrum. I've seen it with my own eyes. I've seen how it's played out. I, I totally get it. But, you know, I, me and my situation having two of the cases, I'm caught because in one, I'm accused of being an alienator. In the other one, I've been alienated using their terms. So what it is, is, you know, you don't want the term used against mothers who report abuse. Mm-hmm. Once you report abuse, it doesn't matter. They automatically are against you. Mm-hmm. You know, you could have all the proof in the world. And that's another part of the corruption. They they purposely hide evidence. They purposely, you know, come up with they they use the guardians and the evaluators to assist them in putting forth the narrative that fits them mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so you know in every case where there's allegations of abuse there's three things mom's coaching mm-hmm. mom is crazy yeah. and mom's an alienator if you hear those three words in any case it should be a red flag to these professionals why isn't it i think because there's money involved and they want to get the case over with. Absolutely. Or they're being paid off. It, it, there's something there. You know, there's there's some cases where I believe that there's, you know, payoffs. There's some cases I believe where there's, you know, one parent knows this person and they're, you know, hey, hook me up, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, and like in yours, it was the ex with the with the uh, working at the courthouse, wasn't it? Yes, his, yes, his wife enjoyed her job at the courthouse. And the first thing the opposing attorney said when we walked in there, and he just said, she's mentally ill and she's alienating the kids. And that's the first time I actually heard alienation. I'm going, what the heck is he talking about? <laughs> and then I looked it up and my attorney said, they want you out of your kid's life permanently. Yes. So she yeah. warned me, but I I didn't get it until I I studied it and looked it up. And these people aren't playing around. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't understand. I don't know if it's the 
to save them work and, you know, reduce their caseload. Mm -hmm. I, I don't understand this because how can any logical person say it's in a child's best interest to never see a parent again? Oh, definitely. Definitely. Because you've got these judges writing no contact orders on a parent that hasn't done anything. No contact via iPhone, landline, iPad. And and then they'll, they'll put in there no contact on holidays, including Mother's Day or Father's Day to these people. And where did these judges get off playing with these families' lives? Right, right. Oh, sorry. That's, That's okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's insane. And how they they get away with this stuff, they have different, I've noticed different patterns. Like, uh, for example, um, when I had two days of trial scheduled back in October, and day one went like normal. You know, the evaluator went, the GAL went, the uh, there was a physician that testified, and then I started to testify. So you come in day two thinking it's just going to continue, right? Mm -hmm. And an interesting thing that happened was there was in-home services at through a place called Presley Ridge. And it's Presley Ridge policy to not get involved in custody issues. They'll give you the basic superficial information. They'll say like, you know, well, there's been X number of sessions and this or, mm -hmm. you know, just, just surface information, but they have an internal policy to not testify, to not, you know, get involved. And the guardians know this, mm -hmm. the evaluators know this mm -hmm. and everything else. So what was interesting is Day two of trial, at the in-home therapist walked into court. Everybody stopped dead because it was totally unexpected. Mm -hmm. In the evaluation, there's all these things she supposedly said. In the guardian ad litem report, which was filed two days prior to trial, which was a violation, it was supposed to be uh, submitted 20 days prior, but that's neither here nor there. But mm -hmm. You know, all these statements, uh, this person said this, this person said that. Come to find out, none of it was true. She was listed as a collateral contact in the evaluation. She come to and and now we know she never even spoke to her. So if we want to talk about corruption, you know, that's a blatant lie. That is misconduct that is mm -hmm. fraud you know same thing with the guardian report it was all a chain reaction and <clears throat> excuse me so testimony was shut down that second day of trial after they saw her oh isn't that interesting yes there i thought we was just gonna you know you think you're gonna just walk in and continue mm -hmm. here's my witness you know i'm thinking okay great i I finally have a way to prove, you know, I'm, I was all excited. Uh, you know, I'm going to prove all, everything's wrong and it's been miscommunicated and all this. Nope, they shut it down. And I was essentially coerced and forced into an interim custody agreement under duress through being misled, giving up physical time. And 
It was continued. It is continued generally now for six months. During this time, I'm thinking, hey, I still have the opportunity to present my case because it's not final yet. So mm-hmm. why shouldn't I have the opportunity to provide counter evidence to, you know, bring, she's still willing to testify. You know, I mean, there's all these things I can still bring in, mm-hmm. but I have, we had, uh, I, I gave my first motion as a pro se litigant um, at the end of February. And during this encounter with Judge Costa, I was able to pick up what his plan is and as far as to make all of this trouble go away. Because there's been other, many other things, you know, I don't think we'll have time to really talk about, you know, all the specifics, but I have a lot of instances of things in writing that I can prove are false. Well, hey, this this could make another podcast, so <laughs> no worries. Well, <laughs> I mean, we're talking like the evaluator relied on an illegal recording, and she testified on that first day of trial that I she heard me give permission to record, which I promise you didn't happen. I would know if I gave permission to record, and uh-huh. I did. They won't let me hear the recording. They won't give me access to the recording, and you know as well as I do, Pennsylvania is a two party consent state, right? So, I mean, that's just one example of of the corruption they're trying to hide. And, and, you know, the judge is trying to protect the evaluator, the guardian, you know, CYS, everything else. And it's, it's injustice. Right, right. Now, also, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Your attorney, and I've heard this from other people, they can lose the case for you because they are talking with the opposing usually at a club and they're having some drinks or golfing and they're discussing your case and how it's going to go. So this whole thing is like, it's like a stage. It's like drama. It's already set up and parents need to know this. Yes, absolutely. They do. Um, This is why I went pro se. I fired my attorney in February and I entered, you know, there was a substitution of counsel submitted, pulling her out, putting me in. And, you know, I, in my in in that specific case, I believe that she was put in a position of fearing retaliation in her other cases. Mm. I mean, there's a lot of things, you know, it, this is one of those limited or including but not limited to type of things. Because um, I don't want to get quoted later saying, well, this was what you said on Mary and Petrie's podcast. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, it's I believe it was a contributor but, you know, you can clearly see that that sh- there wasn't a lot of fight on her part. Mm-hmm. You know, I do believe she has a good heart and, you know, she is a good person, but it's maybe, I don't know. It, it's hard to explain that angle, but, you know, I don't want to bash her because I believe that she's put in a difficult position. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know what I mean? That's what it is, is. I don't want to bash her because I do believe deep down she has a good heart, but she's put in this position of, look, she has to work there every day. Right. You know, that kind of thing. So I think me going pro se was the best option mm-hmm. because, you know, being that it is continued, I do still have a chance to try to get everything onto the record before the order becomes final. And that's where we're at now. Um, Recently this week, 
I tried to submit some motions. And another thing I don't think, I do want people to, to know one thing that I discovered mm-hmm. is in Pennsylvania, when I was um, going through drafting the disciplinary complaint against the guardian, I was really reading the law that, uh, you know, that dictates and governs guardian ad litem, you know, duties, behaviors, you know, the rules. And number six in that rule says that you are allowed to submit comments in response to a guardian ad litem report. That was the first time I ever heard that. I mean, I've been through two cases. Nobody has ever said, hey, Rhonda, why don't you put your side of the story on the record through these comments? How come nobody's ever brought that up? Now, this is a Pennsylvania thing, mm-hmm. but I, I want other Pennsylvania parents to know that in a case where a guardian ad litem submits a report to the court, you absolutely have the right to put your comments on the record in response to that report. And I've never heard that before. I found it on my own drafting the complaint. And I think that that's important for people to know. And I encourage them to do it, take advantage of it. And where can they find that? You you just file it like a, you know, um, how do I want to say it? You you It's like a not a motion, but you draft it and file it the same way you would a motion. Mm-hmm. So you just do it on your own and, and you go and just file it with the court like you would file a motion. But it's called, you know, it's just titled differently. Mm-hmm. Like a uh, response to right. guardian ad litem. And, and you probably just title it that. Right. And then that uh, six, that is that. Uh, yeah, give me a second. That, sorry um, about that. No, that's okay. I'm just not good at rattling off. I hear people all the time rattle off, you know, this statute number, and I can't remember all that stuff. Um, let me see here. Guardian ad litem. Just uh, if you Google guardian ad litem statute PA, it comes up. Hang on one second. Okay. It's title 23. Title 23, General Assembly, Section 5334. It's under Part B, Numbers. Uh, wait, wait, wait. No, no, no. Where's that at? Um, hang on. I'm glancing here. Because when they file that report, they have to put this in there, like title. Right. Um, hang on. Actually, you know what? Let me pull up mine, the one that I did, because I did reference it. Because I don't think parents know that. I mean, they're going to respond, but they they probably should throw in that title. Here it is. Because um, I referenced it when I wrote my re- my comments. Um. PA code section 5334B6 is the one to quote when you want to put that in. So when I drafted this, I said, you know, and now here comes the plaintiff, Rhonda Vicker, mother pro se, and files the following comments on guardian ad litem report as permitted by PA code section 5334B in parentheses, six in parentheses, respectfully averring the following. Okay, so title 23 isn't in there. 
No, I didn't put Title 23 in there, but Title okay. 23 was how I found it when I was doing the disciplinary complaint. Okay, awesome. So it's 5334 Part B. B6. B6, gotcha. Right, right. Okay, yeah. I mean, um, because people need to know this and they need to stand up for themselves. Right. Right. I, I just, I was astounded that nobody ever talked about that before. And I think it's, you know, a tool that you have that you should utilize. Mm -hmm. But that was, that was interesting. And also, you know, the, what people also need to know is people are contributing to judge campaigns. Oh, one interesting thing I learned about Jessel Costa. Well, first of all, we all know his father, Senator Jay Costa, right? Mm -hmm. Well, apparently daddy helped him raise the most campaign funds for the election back in 2021 when he was elected. So he raised the most money out of all the candidates. And it's, I think I sent you the article where it's, you know, his father helped him. It even says that. Mm -hmm. in the article that his father helped him to raise the most money and he was elected as judge despite being rated as being unqualified i sent you that article too yeah and this is how deep the corruption goes that people don't realize when they you know yeah you know it's it, another huge issue in my case as well was no, no due process Right. I've been hearing this a lot in the last past week that really there's no due process when you walk in there. There is. That is one of the things that they use to, you know, because keep in mind, I believe that in a lot of these cases, they're decided before you walk into court. Uh -huh. And I, I realized that my case was decided when the judge was asked to enforce a subpoena to force a witness to come forward and he refused. And it was a very significant witness. Mm -hmm. And when I when he said that, you can pick up on these things, these little nuances that go on. I want people to watch for them, right? So they can prepare and 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 help you know help themselves better, right? And when I realized that he wasn't going to enforce this subpoena to compel this witness to come forward, I knew where my I knew my case was already decided ahead of time. So because my case was decided ahead of time, and I previously mentioned about you know, picking up on the vibe during these motions in February, mm -hmm. you know, his, I can tell what his plan is. I absolutely believe that his plan is to make my existing order final at a conciliation conference coming up on April 4th so that my case goes away because when an order becomes final, any evidence previous to that date is inadmissible next time. Mm -hmm. And I, people should be aware of those things too. So in order to make all this corruption go under the rug, what's the best way to do it? Oh, let's just not give her any additional trial days. Let's not give her any opportunity to provide, you know, counter testimony, you know, uh, you know, access to evidence proving what she's saying. And we're just going to make all this go away and all the corruption goes under the rug. And I'm fighting like crazy to do that. So that was why, you know, and it all connects, you know, with me firing the lawyer, entering my pro se appearance, because the things that I, um, the things that I put in these motions that I ended up getting filed last week were things that my attorney was scared out of her mind to ever bring up. Mm -hmm. I'm not, I'm not afraid. Of, well, 
I, I expect retaliation, but I'm not in her position. You know, it's different. Right. Should, should I have to fear retaliation? No. Do I? Yes. But I at least expect it now. Mm -hmm. So when it does happen, you know, there's no reason that anything, what's the word I'm looking for? Hinky should come out of the blue to attack me with now Mm -hmm. just for speaking out against the injustice, just for getting my points on the record. Because what I did was I had the guardian ad litem comments and three other motions that I wanted to file this week. One was to ask for a rebuttal expert witness to refute the custody evaluator. Mm-hmm. One was to correct the record because CYS reported something in a letter that was blatantly inaccurate. And I have a court order that I submitted as an exhibit proving that their statement was false. And that CYS letter actually was the initial core of the snowball that started at, you know, the, the CYS report. Okay. So the guardian ad litem took the CYS report and ran with it. Then the evaluator and the guardian, you know, went from there, but it was all based on this initial CYS report. That's what started the snowball. So being that that was false in the first place, Uh I should have a right to, you know, present my counter evidence, right? Mm-hmm. And to show that this is inaccurate and false and impeach it and, you know, prove it wrong. And so the third thing was to also get copies of all of the guardian ad lit- litem communication with the other parties throughout the life of the case. Right. Something I learned, you know, through reading other cases, it is important to read other cases and familiarize yourself because had I not read these other cases, I wouldn't have known you could do that. So through reading other cases, learning that, wait a minute, why don't you get the guardian ad litem comments and see what she formed her recommendations based upon? That is something you have an absolute right to do. So when, um, the motion at um, in February, the one I mentioned where I got the vibe, that motion was to get rid of the guardian, mm-hmm. the case, and that she she was taken off the case. But what he's trying to do, he's trying to say that, well, you entered into an interim custody agreement in October, but wait a minute, the guardian continued to work on the case after that. Mm-hmm. And a lot happened with the guardian after that. Mm-hmm. And therefore, you know, why shouldn't I have access to her communication with all the players now? A, the trial is currently continued. B, she did more work on the case after this interim agreement that you're going to try to use to brush all the corruption under the rug. And C, I have a right technically to still the right or or the opportunity, I should say, exists to recall her as a witness. Oh, yes. Good point. So what I have, I they're charging me for this, you know, work that she did. Why don't I have a right to see it? And Judge Costa's words during that motion were. Go ahead and file a motion and see where that goes. And this is how they treat pro se litigants, just so everyone knows. Well, here's here's it gets even better, Marianne. So Tuesday of last week, 
I go into the courthouse. I had my four documents that I wanted to to file. Um, in addition to that, there was also two other things that um, I, I I'm also ordered to submit it because I had an independent psyche valve done on myself, mm-hmm. and it it shows that I have PTSD. Mm-hmm. you know, throughout the life of the case, um, I was accused of needing medication and being unstable and. You know, I have PTSD because of the trauma from going through all this, mm-hmm. you know, before, you know, back in 2016, I was an entirely different, my life was entirely different mm-hmm. before I was put in this position anyway. Um, so when I walked into the courthouse on Tuesday to file all these things and which I'm, you know, mandated also to get this report in, mm-hmm. I Pro se litigants and attorneys in Allegheny County have two separate procedures. Attorneys can, when they want something filed, they just email the judge, they email opposing counsel and they file it. Pro se litigants have to go through the pro se office, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which it's, from what I can tell it, it appears to be like a building gatekeeper. Mm-hmm. They pick you apart and they determine if you're worthy to file this or not, which that's a violation of your rights. Mm-hmm. You, if you want to file something in a courthouse as a, a citizen, you should have every right to file what you want, how you want, you know, if it's wrong, so be it, but mm-hmm. you should still have the opportunity to seek, you know, having your issue addressed. So when I go in on Tuesday, I go into the pro se office and they refuse to take my motions. So I start like, oh, my God. You know, I I really don't want to, you know, go into how I got them in, but I eventually got them in later. Mm -hmm. That's good. Yeah, good. Yeah. I mean, and the thing is, is when you file a motion, it becomes part of the record. See, this is that that game he was trying to do by shutting me down, not letting me get my, you know, side of the story and evidence on the record. He just wanted to totally like control what went on the record and something uh, noteworthy too. When I went to those motions in February, being a pro se litigant, I asked him specifically, can this be on the record? Mm -hmm. Because what if I get an attorney next week, whatever, they should have the right to hear what happened at the motion. Mm -hmm. Refused. Jessel Costa refused to let my motion be heard on the record. And that brings up a significant point. When I was, you know, when the interim custody order was entered, it was off the record. When I lost legal custody, it was off the record. And both times with the legal custody, if I didn't consent, because he's using these consent agreements Mm -hmm. against you. If I didn't consent to giving up legal custody back in May of 2022, I, then he was going to take my physical custody. If I didn't consent to giving up physical custody time on October 27th, then I risked supervised visitation. And this is all off the record. These are the shenanigans that these family court players are using to just make you go away. They don't want to hear you. And and it's horrible. It's Mm -hmm. horrible. 
I mean, I've had to, you know, find inner strength so many times over and, and my heart goes out to some of the moms and, and yes, I'm not going to say it's not fathers too, you know, it, it is there's, I'm sure there's instances where fathers are, you know, getting shafted in family court, just the same as mothers. But I, I think a lot of this is because of domestic violence. And let's just be honest, look at the statistics, you know, it's, it's typically, mothers who are the victims of domestic violence, because mm-hmm. these are usually the ca- the cases involving abuse are the ones that go haywire faster. You know, I mean, now I'm not talking about the dependency and CYS termination of parental rights. That's a whole nother topic. We can have a podcast about that. And we will. We will. <laughs> because that's absolutely, you know, a part of it, too, that I've uh-huh. been looking into. But I mean, they try to take this target parent and which what they did to me and they do to everybody is they try to wear you down and break right. you. Right. And you have to be w- willing to, um, uh, how do I say, absorb a lot of verbal abuse from the opposing attorney and the judge. Oh, the, the verbal abuse, something kind of funny that, that, um, <laughs> I want to mention is when I filed the motions back in February, you know, opposing counsel comes back and calls, calls me vexatious. Right. Oh yeah. And, and, and it's hilarious because I have an email from the guardian that specifically said, well, if you, because they, I I wasn't, she didn't want me even so much as speaking to a medical doctor. So, um, there was an issue where I was criticized for doing it. And, you know, my attorney at the time did fire back and say, well, what's she supposed to do to document her concerns? And the guardian replies back, well, she can file a motion. Okay. You know, I have half a mind to attach that email as an exhibit to every motion I file saying, Hey, the guardian told me to do it. Uh Mm -hmm. You know, why not? You know, I mean, it's not being vexatious. It's standing up for your rights that they're trying to suppress and it's, oh, it's, Yes. Even when you're like, I was answering motions. So they, they would fire one and I would fire one back. And then suddenly I'm litigious and vexatious. Well, and I'm just, I'm just answering you. Right. Right. I mean, but I think one thing that should be a red flag in any case, when you hear the coaching, alienating and crazy, it's the trifecta. Yes that as soon as you hear those things, somebody needs to raise an eyebrow and say, come on, you know? Yeah. And, and it, they always say this about mothers who look this, you and this guy were together at some point. So she's so crazy and so evil, but yet you wanted, you know, you wanted to have a child with her. And all of a sudden when she leaves you and hurts your ego Mm -hmm. and you're suddenly crazy. But I mean, I've seen it throughout many cases. You know, the things I'm I'm talking about with you today are not just in regards to one. There's central themes throughout them all. Mm-hmm. That's the thing. That's why I, I I don't like focusing on just me. I will speak out about the instances of corruption that I've seen, mm-hmm. but I like to talk in a more general, broad sense because mm-hmm. the things that I'm talking about today, I have seen time and time again, over and over and over and over. Every day I talk to at least one protective mother, mm-hmm. sometimes three and four. Oh yes. They are, they are the best support system. And, you know, 
how do I want to say it? Um, you just start to pick up on the culture of it. Like when I first got into this, protective mothers, like when you first hear a protective mother's story, mm. I don't want the general public thinking she's crazy and this is all off the wall, insane behavior. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, when I was first getting into it myself, I'm like, wait a minute, come on, this can't happen. And that's the cha- the crossover between the general public perception versus the reality of family court. You, when you first hear about all this stuff, you're like, no way, it, 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 it's not possible. You're nuts. And, and that, that is something that I want people to recognize simply isn't true because until you're in that situation, you don't get it. You don't get it. You know, it's, it's easy to say, wait a minute, she's out of her mind. But, mm-hmm. and then when you're there, you're like, oh my God, no, Mm-mm. she's right. She was absolutely right. Mm-hmm. And I, and that's the, you know, I want the general public to become aware of all this stuff. And if so many times the court will dangle a carrot in front of you to keep mm-hmm. you in check, to keep you compliant, like it's their mechanism of control. It's kind of like coercive control. Mm-hmm. You think about it, it, not kind of, it is, you know, it, If you behave yourself, you'll get your kid. Mm -hmm. If you behave yourself, we won't do this. Well, meanwhile, you're trampling on all my constitutional rights along the way. Right. Eventually, like I got to a point where, look, you're going to rule against me no matter what. I have no option but to fight back. Look, you want to give me supervised visits, strip me of, you know, any and all rights, you know, that I have. Mm -hmm. Where else do I have to go? I, I can fight back the best I can. Right. You know, and a lot of mothers are scared and I get that. And I get that. But if some, if, if I had one wish, it would be to give all those mothers the courage to fight back. Yes. And that, that's the message I want to really get out there is family court's going to do what family court's going to do anyway. Don't take it laying down. Right. And if you can at all, if you can just try to avoid even going into these courtrooms. Right. If you, you know, but Hey, you, you can file for divorce on your own, you know, separately you b- both hopefully can co-parent and, or talk about your divorce settlement yourselves instead of running into a courtroom, just because you're getting divorced doesn't mean you have to run into a courtroom right. and, and, uh, and try to keep third party involvement out of the relationship with your co-parent. Uh, I, I know I feel your pain on that one. Trust me. Um, I can't go into anything specific, but I can tell you, I understand what you're saying. Yeah. Um, but as far as co-parenting. Yeah. The other party has to be genuine. Right. To co-parent because what that what the what the abusers will do, they will put on a show. <laughs> for when people are watching they're they're a totally different person than in real life i've seen it time and time and time mm-hmm. again you know i i even saw this one time where there was a an our family wizard message i want to co-parent and but the actions in real life certainly didn't reflect that sentiment right and, right. and you know but in the the two minutes that court's addressing your issues how do they know? Mm-hmm. 
you know, they, they just, oh, they see this email. Oh, he's such a nice guy. Not mm -hmm. taking the time to really look at the history of the case, look at the dynamics. They don't care. They mm -hmm. want to see something quick and easy in two minutes. You know, and then that's how, you know, look at the Tommy Valva case. Mm -hmm. That, I, I every time I see that case, I get, you know, like chills down my spine. Because mm -hmm. I, I understand her perspective. I get it. And, and that's exactly how, I mean, we're up to what, over 900 children, you know, losing their lives as a result, you know, of all this kind of stuff since 2008. Ugh. I mean, that's how these, these cases go south and that's how children end up abused and, and dead in a lot of situations. I mean, talking about other mother's cases, I mean, let's, the Tommy Valve is a good one, Kate and Mancuso. I mean, look at all these. Mm -hmm. and and what is baffling to me so we have these cases where children have actually died and nothing's changed no that wasn't even enough no. why why are we not getting somewhere with the reforms we need to fight harder we need to come together and and get these changes enacted mm -hmm. it would just be nice to abolish it all and start over or go down to criminal i'm sorry civil court Take right. everything down to civil court where a parent can say, I think I think you just only get a six man jury there, but at least you have a jury. Yeah. And yeah. um, and then I think there would be more exposure as well as video cameras and tamper proof mics in these courtrooms. I I listened to your uh, podcast with uh, James Kelly and also the um, one thing I wanted to say, I heard Roman Brick when yeah. he mentioned about, you know, judges hate Facebook. He's yeah. to that effect, I can't remember what his exact words were, but, you know, Facebook is all we have. That's why the gag orders are so prevalent because they don't want their dirty little secrets getting out. Oh, exactly. And this is one platform that we have to bring attention and awareness. And that is their biggest fear. So we need to use it. Right. And, and um, but you're right about the cameras in the courtrooms. There's no oversight. Yeah, they'll say that there's a judicial review board in this and that. But, you know, wait a minute. Jessel Costa's dad is a senator. I'm sure he knows this person. Yeah. Person. And, yeah hey, hey, do me a favor. Make this go away for me. Hey, you know, I mean, that if, if we're not realizing that that kind of stuff goes on, we're, you know, disillusioned. Right. Kind of like the low country in South Carolina. Mm -hmm. Kind of like that. I mean, it, it, it's just it, the our children's future is at stake. Mm -hmm. And this is also a potential, you know, I can see this becoming a generational problem. Like, mm -hmm. think of all the kids that have been involved in these cases. Something I would love to see um, come out down the line is more research and studies done on the children, you know, that have been involved in these cases. Mm -hmm. You know, oh. um, I'm, I'm, exactly and i this is why i can't wait for our next podcast i think i think we should talk about that okay all right <laughs> so um how can people reach you if they have any questions just search for me on facebook Rhonda vicker i have my main name fific in parentheses um there's the email address stop the madness i think it's 15219 which is the zip code of family division at gmail.com and 
feel free to reach out to me anytime, day or night. If you're a protective mother in crisis or just need somebody to talk to, I've, I'm always there to talk to protective mothers. Mm-hmm. I've had calls at 3 a.m. and I'm okay with it. You know, if if there's a crisis going on, I we need to be there for each other and we need to band together. There is strength in numbers. Mm-hmm. If a dad needs to call you, can they yeah. call you? Yeah. I'm, cool. I don't want to say that I'm, you know, anti-man, you know, because they, they do. I, I'm sure that it's happened. It's just that I see a lot. I think there's a lot more uh, abuse victims who are women. And that's why mm-hmm. I'm coming from that perspective. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Well, hey, I'm so glad and I'm going to have you back on. But hey, don't jump off. Okay. Slam the Gavels of Podcast to help the public understand what really goes on in these family courtrooms. I am your host, Marianne Petrie, author of Dismantling Family Court Corruption, Why Taking the Kids Was Not Enough, and Cry Out for Justice, Poems of Truth. Please join us again here with Rhonda Vicker in the future and other exciting guests. Thank you so much. This was excellent. I've learned so much from you, Rhonda. Thank you, Marianne. Nice seeing you again. Definitely. Take care.